1: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day.
2: Welcome to part two of the Behind the Knife Clinical Challenges in Thoracic Surgery with your Swedish thoracic surgery team. We're discussing complex pleural effusions in empyema, in part one, we discussed intrapleural fibrinolinic therapy for the management of these effusions. We talked about the MIST-2 trial, which demonstrated TPA and DNase are effective in draining the chest, but randomized clinical trial data is lacking when it comes to comparing intrapleural fibrinolinics to surgical management. Recall in part one, our case discussed a 39-year-old male with three days of symptoms who presented with a large left-sided parapneumonic effusion, which was successfully treated with lytic therapy. In part two, we'll discuss the nuances of surgical management of these patients, including decortication with VATS versus open thoracotomy, as well as what to do when faced with someone who is a poor surgical candidate, but isn't responding to medical treatment alone. Hello. And welcome to part two in clinical challenges in thoracic surgery: complex pleural effusions and empyema. In part one, we discussed a 39-year-old male with a complex paraneumonic pleural effusion who underwent lytic therapy with excellent resolution of his effusion and symptoms. In part two, we're gonna change the scenario up a bit as we discuss the nuances of the surgical management of pleural effusions and empyema. Enjoy.
3: So what about if this patient actually came in and they had two months of a cough, shortness of breath, was progressively worsening, mildly elevated leukocytosis, chest X-ray shows a large right pleural effusion, but on CT, rather than a relatively benign, no major loculations, instead, this has multiple loculations, severe pleural thickening over a centimeter, blunted, rounded edges well, what's going to be different about this scenario compared to our initial patient uh, that was more of an acute picture? Well, Peter, this is where
0: we start talking about jumping right into maybe surgical management of complicated uh, pleural effusion uh, with a trapped lung. And um, the thick rind and the chronicity of a symptom suggests that this is uh, more like a chronic empyema at this point in time, or a chronic pleural space with a trapped lung in. This is a patient we who we believe is less likely to be successful with lytic therapy alone. But remember, these are still clinical judgments without published data to back them. So as before, he would start be started on an IV antibiotic therapy. If there's instability, respiratory distress, secondary to his effusion, uh, a chest tube would be placed uh, for source control or to at least start to drain some of the fluid. But beyond that, we need to start discussing surgical options, though, is this it? tube is always the first choice to figure out what we've got before we get going down too far down the pathway.
1: But so before we allow Kelly to talk here, I just want to say that for the purposes of a randomized clinical trial, it's important that we don't use this sort of judgment and that all these patients are at least discussed and included in a randomized clinical trial. Agree? Agrees. If they meet inclusion criteria. Correct. If they meet inclusion criteria that are set up a priori. So uh, I think it's just critically important that while there's a lot of discussion, shared decision making, and art, uh, the purposes of a well designed randomized clinical trial is that uh, we answer these questions and patients that are appropriate are enrolled.
0: In Dr. Gordon's trial, everybody got a tube first to see whether or not the diffusion would drain its, in its entirety on its own before we decided about lytics or not. So, and at a. At, that still remains a very good teaching point for all the folks on the listening on the podcast is we always put a tube first to figure out what we've got. Yeah.
3: Because, remember, a simple effusion, if it completely drains by that chest X-ray the following day, that's probably all they need. They probably don't need lytics. They don't need surgery. It'll drain. Antibiotics will take care of it.
2: And I think all our listeners are starting to figure out why this is one of our favorite topics to debate Uh, There's obviously lots of options for patients, which I think is awesome. Um,
1: Never invite an interventional pulmonologist (laughs) to a knife fight.
2: But I am a surgery resident, and going to the OR is one of my favorite things to do. So finally, it's time that we talk about how we surgically manage these. So let's break it down. When we do need to go to the OR to drain uh, these effusions, what are our options uh, in patients who are candidates for surgery?
0: Well, Kelly, I think the first thing you've heard us talk about VATS mostly through this, but I think the first decision you need to make as a surgeon is, am I going to be able to do this minimally invasively with a VATS technique, or is this something that really we're going to go straight to own with thoracotomy? And these days, many thoracic surgeons of us would opt to start off VATS because the outcomes are similar, the morbidity in hospital length of stay is lower. However, thoracotomy is very appropriate provides very appropriate exposure, and there are excellent thoracic and general surgeons who would prefer that route. Peter, I know you usually start VATS, but what are some of the things that would make you lean towards starting open?
3: Well, if they've had a previous thoracotomy on that side, you know that things are going to be a bit more stuck. If they've had significant chest trauma, multiple broken ribs, hemothorax, they may have fibrothorax, and that'll make it tougher. Uh, If they've had a prior pleuridesis, especially talc, again, extensive adhesive burden, Uh, Or if the chronicity makes this more like chronic empyema or even BP fistula, those would all be reasons that I might consider to go open. Definitely, if we're considering some type of muscle flap for coverage, that would be another reason to go open. Um, But even in a lot of these patients, I would still try VATS first because you may be surprised. It may not be as bad as you think, and you may be able to complete it VATS, and you can always take the camera out of the chest and convert to a thoracotomy, you don't really lose much by doing that. So I'd probably start and attempt VATS, but I'd counsel patients and say, look, there's a high risk that I won't be able to complete it minimally invasive and have to convert.
2: So I'm used to getting pimped on how I'm going to do procedures, but Dr. Louie, your turn. Tell me how you do your open thoracotomy and decortication in patients you deem unfit for a VATS.
0: I'm not sure that they're necessarily unfit for vats or vats is just not matched to them. So if we're going to do open thoracotomy, one of the first things I want to do is make sure that I've reviewed the imaging in great detail because you want to plan your thoracotomy incision over where you think you're going to have maximal access to the issue. So if it's a lower pleural complicated pleural space, then we might start start lower rather than the standard fifth or sixth interspace because... That's where we want to get to because the diaphragm often is the hardest part about a decortication, getting it down off the diaphragm. But in general, standard post thoracotomy, thoracotomy, uh, once you choose your inner space, uh, you may as a surgeon wish to resect the rib you're going in over. So if we're resecting rib six to give us a better exposure, that may be one of the things that you have to decide. Once we get access in space, Usually the loculations are broken up with a finger as we get a finger into the chest to gently to see, pushing really against the pleural surface on the ribs and trying not to touch the lung or get into it, but trying to get enough space so that we can see. The goal remains to completely decorticate the rind or pleural peel in its entirety uh, off the lung parenchyma, including the fissures. Uh, But again, it becomes a balance between lung injury, operative time, patient tolerance. It's never perfect. But you might want you need to get the lung expanded. And so one of the challenges once you get in there is the is the rind. Can you get the rind separated off the lung? You may get to a point where the peel is very thin and still the lung will come up. In that case, you may have to take a knife and just start cutting across the pleural rind and and hash mark it all the way across to allow the lung to come up. That's maybe one of the last things that we'll try in an open open thoracotomy decortication to get that lung up. And that may be necessary, but you've got to get the lung up if you're going to go uh, open.
3: Yeah, even even vats, I've done that where I've taken a knife and it will give you a starting point to start with your decortication that maybe you can't get with some of the vats as instruments. Um, so using a knife to cut through the the rind is is a good tip. You know,
0: Peter, that brings up a good good point. What instruments are you going to use differently, vats versus versus open in your decorication, because I've learned some tricks over time. People use periosteal elevators. Uh, I, in a VATS case, will use the mediastinoscopy stenoscopy forceps because they really hold the pleural ride nicely as well so that you can get a grip. What do you
3: use? Uh, The mediastinoscopy stenoscopy forceps sometimes. um, A lot of times the instruments that you have may be limited by the institution that you're at because they were definitely different between training and here. So you kind of pick and choose what's going to work. In some cases, even some of the vascular forceps have worked where you can grab the pleura um, and uh, twist it and rotate it to apply tension and then use a chitner, uh at the same time to help elevate the pleura off the lung. Uh, on the open setting, I've definitely used periosteal elevators because those are helpful, similar to how you would do um, a pleurectomy decortication for mesothelioma, a uh, similar concept. Uh, although in this concept, you try and leave the the visceral pleural lining intact on the lung to try and avoid some of those prolonged air leaks that can happen.
0: Yeah, so so Kelly, once we get the lung expanded, we'll have anesthesia generally keep the lung inflated once we're into the chest because it's often easier to see the lung come up. We don't keep the lung collapsed. We actually let them blow air up and intermittently bring the lung up and down because that helps you understand where the peel is in order to take it off of the lung. And then at the end, you're going to... Once you've decided that the lung will fill the space, that's when you sort of are done. You've got to fill the space, have apposition. That concept has come over. Dr. Gordon started our conversation off of that. We're still talking about it surgically. You need to have pleural apposition. And then we assess for air leaks, generally we'll place three tubes, an angled one on the base, one up the front, one up the back. And if it's particularly messy, I will place a JP drain through an anterior second and interspace incision, and I will irrigate the chest with saline, or water for the first 24, 48 hours just to continue to irrigate all the debris out.
2: Those are some really interesting nuances of, of your open decortication. Uh, Dr. White, what are some of the, the nuances for your VATS approach um, that you think are important for our listeners to know? Yeah,
3: so similar to where you're picking widget, uh, intercostal space to make your thoracotomy, where you put your camera, you really need to assess the imaging and see where you can go. In some cases, if your standard 6th or 7th intercostal space mid-axillary line, if the lung is plastered up underneath that, you know all you're going to do is cause a lung injury. So you may have to move it either anterior or posterior and try and enter that empyema space with the camera. Once you get the camera in, a lot of times it can be very difficult to see enough to put in your additional uh, access incisions. So sometimes I'll actually use the camera itself as a blunt instrument in order to free the lung away from the chest wall to make space. And then I try and get anterior room to put in my anterior axis incision, usually in the fourth intercostal space. I like to make that incision bigger, two or three centimeters in size, and then use an extra small Alexis wound protector. That really helps protect the tissues as you're passing instruments in and out. It makes it a lot easier to take out all of that grumous and gelatinous uh, um, material that goes along with these empyemas, and I can usually get two or sometimes three instruments into that space. And then once I get that in, I can work posterior, and then get in my posterior access incision, usually a couple of finger breaths below the tip of the scapula. Once you get those three incisions in, you can port hop with the camera um, until you can completely see the entire chest space, and then. the the principles of the surgery are the same. You want to completely decorticate the pleural lung enough to get the pleural to expand. It's super tempting to want to take down the rind off of the chest wall pleura. It is so satisfying to peel that and take it out of the patient. But in reality, is that really getting you much benefit? Probably not. So I wouldn't spend too much time doing that. Again, you've got to get that lung to expand uh, and oppose the pleural chest wall. Uh, then a lot of times we'll do that intermittent inflation to get a better sense as to where we need to work. Um, and when we're done, same thing, assess for air leaks. If there's really major air leaks, we can do a pledgeted suture to repair it. Uh, otherwise, then we'll put in chest tubes. I use standard, do three tubes as well, angled inferior, and then two straight tubes towards the apex on the anterior and posterior aspect. Uh, and then put them to suction, usually leave them to suction for 48 hours afterwards And then we'll talk about removing the tubes either in in a sequential pattern or all of them at once if everything looks really nice.
0: Peter, let's go back and talk about your comment about not taking some of that pleural rind off of the, the parietal pleural or the chest wall surface. I often find that taking that out, as you said, super satisfying and may not have a huge amount of benefit. The one benefit I think taking that out is it creates space. And so sometimes... That's the first thing I'll do because it'll allow me to see a little bit better if I've taken all that stuff off the chest wall. So then I can have more visualization. But it depends yeah. on what you're looking at. It
3: depends on how thick it is. depends yeah. on what you're looking. depends on how much bleeding you want to cause. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know,
1: Brian, Peter, I mean, this is fascinating. You know, I, you know, I don't like to brag, but I did about a dozen medical thoracoscopies and in, uh, interventional pulmonary training. So I feel like I'm right there with you. <laughs> But no, I mean, I I have a ton of respect. And in fact, I've gone in on some of y'all's cases. And, you know, each time I'm just uh, 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 overwhelmed by uh, what literally looks like a bomb went off in the chest sometimes. So uh, why don't you uh, let me know what happened uh, with this patient with the big rind?
2: Yeah. So this patient, our second clinical scenario, he underwent an incredibly successful right bath decortication. Um, his middle and lower lobes were initially trapped, um, but after doing what Dr. Louie and Dr. White described, clearing off that pleural rind from the lung, it was able to get full expansion to fill his pleural space. Um, he got his two apical chest tubes, um, those got pulled on post update day two. His basilar chest tube was able to get pulled on post update day four, and he discharged on post update day five. His total length of stay was eight days.
3: So, lastly, we've talked about decortication, but what about those patients that? you really don't feel they could undergo a full decortication. Recent heart attack on dual antiplatelet therapy, they're going to bleed like stink. Other systemic anticoagulation needs. So what are the other options for surgical management or non-surgical management for these patients that could not get either lytic therapy or a decortication? So Peter, one of the options
0: for these more medically uh, unstable or critically ill patients is to consider uh, rib resection and an empyema tube, which can often be done under a local block anesthetic with constant sedation or max sedation with an anesthesiologist in the operating room to avoid general anesthesia because they're so frail. We prefer to place a surgical tube for those, and we will upsize pigtail drains as surgical tubes are less likely to kink or cause long-term issues. The overall goal of an empyema tube is really to allow persistent control drainage of the pleural space Sometimes that's often put in with a small rib resection because you can do it under minimal dissection and try to keep the bleeding issues small.
3: Yeah, and that rib resection can really help with long-term pain um, uh, around that tube. Absolutely. We'll
0: then often go back. Uh, we'll often back the tube out stepwise over time uh, to allow the channel to collapse and heal behind it. Um, while we don't usually do this, this is there is also the option of cutting the, the tube near the skin and with an external extension on placing safety, that's the true empyema tube management so the tube doesn't go into the chest. But more often than not, we have sort of a portable atrium hooked up to it these days um, just to see, keep it a little less messy because you always have drainage coming out of them. But due to the chronic lung entrapment, there is no risk of lung collapse because everything's sort of stuck in there. So you can open up that chest uh, without too much trouble. This method allows the tube to be backed out slowly. One to two centimeters uh, every couple of three, four days until this place is obliterated and the exudate dries up or the tube falls out.
2: Great. Thanks, Dr. Louis. Um, what about the additional surgical options? I've heard of things like an, a lesser flap or a claggett window, um, but I haven't seen them yet or, or ever done one uh, with you guys. Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
3: So these are much more used uh, in the past, particularly to treat tuberculosis. Um, rarely done these days, but uh, it can come in handy. So I've only done a couple. One of them was uh, in a patient with a very large space, renal failure, um, at the time couldn't tolerate a decortication, uh, chronic chest infection, tried an empyema tube that ultimately was not successful even after many months. So I ended up converting him to a modified LOS or flap. So typically uh, this is an end option for con- when conservative options have failed. So a true LLSR flap would actually create a flap that would allow one-way drainage, but then um, almost create like a, a a flap valve effect. Modified simply takes away that valve effect and instead creates an epithelialized thoracostomy window. So it involves creating an inverted U flap. You remove two or three partial rib resections underneath that flap, and then you'll suture down that epithelialized flap either to the diaphragm or to the pleura, um, which allows a wide open space into the chest uh, to essentially allow dressing changes. Now, you can do a wound vac to help with the healing, um, but ultimately the goal is dressing changes and allow open drainage. And again, this lung is plastered, so there's no risk of the lung collapsing because it's essentially fixed in place due to that thick pleural rind.
0: Yeah, you know, Peter, although potentially eye-saving, this commits the patient to a prolonged period of dressing changes, wound care, um, but it may be our only option in, in trying to save the patient's life. We definitely try everything short of this to manage the patient before committing to such a morbid procedure, but it's always in our toolkit. The claggett window is slightly different. It doesn't involve creating an inverted U. It still remains that you need to resect two to three ribs, and then you end up sewing the skin to the edge of the pleura to cover over those edges, so that you have sort of a, a cavity with which you can put in dressing changes and flaps. And more recently, folks have used wound vacs to help clean up these areas, so you can put a wound vac in there and and clean that up.
2: Well, I hope all of our listeners uh, have enjoyed what I think has been such an excellent, comprehensive overview of of the management of complicated pleural effusions. I think now it's time to move on to our quick hits.
3: So if you have an effusion that's greater than half the hemothorax loculated pleural fluid ends up growing GPCs, that is?
2: So that's a complicated pleural effusion and an empyema.
0: And what's the first step in managing a complicated
3: pleural effusion?
2: IV antibiotics and chest tube placement.
3: And the standard care for lytic therapy?
2: So you're going to do 10 milligrams of TPA and 5 milligrams of DNA twice daily for a total of six doses.
3: Now, that is what we used as part of the randomized pilot study and what was used in the MIST-2 trial. Um, But there are other doses that have been used and published as well.
0: Is there a difference in mortality or need for surgical intervention with a large-bore or small-bore chest tube?
2: So the MIST-1 trial showed there's no difference.
3: And lastly, what would really aid us in that decision-making and counseling process with patients when we're trying to decide lytics or surgery for management of complicated pleural effusions?
2: We're missing a multi-institutional randomized controlled trial. Well, that's all we got. Uh, Thank you guys for joining us for another clinical challenge in thoracic surgery. We hope you learned something about the management of complicated pleural effusions, um, and a big thanks to Dr. Gordo for joining us and expanding our understanding with his randomized pilot trial and all his pearls of wisdom. As always, dominate the day.
0: Be sure to check out our website at www.behindtheknife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review.